because if you will like ask all these young people why are they still staying in ukraine instead of going to work for spacex or ula or european space agency they say that there is something they choose over the big salaries and really good terms they are proud of what they're doing in ukraine they're proud of their heritage and they are really sacrificing a lot to stay here in Ukraine with their families under this severe invasion from Russia. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hi again, Downlink listeners. This is the third week of Russia's war in Ukraine. Russian President Vladimir Putin's plan to use his army to cut off the head of Ukraine's duly elected government in Kyiv, well, it's bogged down in freezing mud and stiffening resistance from Ukraine's regular and irregular forces. Resistance comes in many forms. Just refusing to leave is one. In this episode, we're going to meet some of the leaders of Ukraine's space sector who have not only remained in-country, but who are continuing to work on their space projects and prepare for the future. Missiles have struck Dnipro City and that region, which is the center of Ukraine's space and missile industry. But our guests, Volodymyr Usov and Lubomir Sabadosh, who have both led the State Space Agency of Ukraine and now together have their own space launch company, Orbit Boy, and their colleague Lilia Shavchuk, the director of Ukraine's Space Initiative Center, they say that much of that infrastructure remains untouched so far. But first, we're going to hear from Homer Hickam. He's a U.S. Army Vietnam War veteran, a retired NASA aerospace engineer and astronaut trainer, and a New York Times bestselling book author. In 1996, he led the NASA team in Russia that negotiated how Russian cosmonauts and American astronauts would train for missions aboard the International Space Station. It's a program that's near and dear to him. But this week, he authored an op-ed in the Washington Post with the headline, Our Space Partnership with Russia Can't Go On. Here's our conversation. Hi, Homer. Thank you for joining me. Well, hi, Laura. It's great to be with you today. Some of the younger folks in the audience may not be so familiar with your past work with NASA or your relationship with the Russian state space corporation Roscosmos, or even that the 1999 film October Sky was based on your New York Times bestselling memoir, Rocket Boys. So please, if you could take just a minute and introduce yourself, and what are you working on now? <laughs> well, thank you, Laura. Um, well, I'm Homer Hickam, and uh, you're right. Um, I had a, a long NASA career, uh, a 19-year-long NASA career, uh, but started back in uh, 1981. I worked principally as an astronaut uh, training manager. I trained the first Japanese uh, astronauts for the Space Lab J mission. Uh, I also trained, uh, helped train the crew that went up and repaired the Hubble Space Telescope. I'm a scuba instructor, so I spent a lot of time underwater in a neutral buoyancy simulator. Uh, a lot of times I wore the, the uh, extravehicular mobility unit, the spacesuit underwater to work out the procedures before the astronauts came up. And after the, the first mission uh, to go up and fix the, uh, the Hubble, 
which was in 1992, uh, I was assigned to the International Space Station, which didn't exist at that time, by uh, Vice President Gore, who um, wanted for NASA to figure out how to include the Russians in uh, our space station plans. And so I ended up going over to uh, to Russia uh, a few times to try to work out a, uh, a mechanism between us where we could jointly build uh, and operate the International Space Station. Toward the end of that, my career with NASA, however, I wrote this book called Rocket Boys, which was a memoir of me growing up in West Virginia and building rockets. And um, that became a number one New York Times bestseller. And they made the movie October Sky based on it. It's still a very popular movie. And uh, so I retired from NASA and started a writing career. So, uh, but I, I do keep my hand in things space-wise. I'm on the board of the Space and Rocket Center here in Huntsville, Alabama, and do some consulting from time to time. I've got to ask you about your latest memoir, which was published just a few months ago, and it includes your time working with Russia's space agency and training their cosmonauts. Now, how did you come up with the title, Don't Blow Yourself Up? <laughs> well, Don't Blow Yourself Up was my mom's advice from the very beginning of my uh, rocket building career back in Colwood, West Virginia. Um, that was, uh, I was actually so impressed by the uh, Sputnik 1, the first Earth satellite that the Russians put up, that I decided I wanted to be part of all this thing that was happening. And even though I was just, uh, I was a, the coal mine superintendent's son there in this little mining town, I thought, you know, I, I want to learn how to build a rocket. So at the kitchen table one night after Sputnik, I had told my, uh, my parents and my older brother, who thought I was an idiot, of course, that I was going to build a rocket. And uh, my dad ignored me. He was probably thinking about something that was going on at the mine. And my brother just laughed. And uh, my, But my mom took a long look at me and she said, well, don't blow yourself up, which uh, I took as permission <laughs> to, <laughs> to build these rockets. And of course, the first thing I did was blow up her rose garden fence and her beautiful rose, uh, roses that she loved. But um, she didn't kill me for that. She just kept telling me not to blow myself up. So throughout my, the rest of my life and, uh, at, at college, where I built this giant cannon for uh, to fire after every, every football touchdown, and then later in Vietnam and beyond, my mom was constantly telling me, uh, either don't blow yourself up or didn't I tell you not to blow yourself up? So that's how I got the title. <laughs> <laughs> um, on a more serious matters, I reached out to you because this week in the March 9th edition, the Washington Post published your opinion piece that had the headline, our space partnership with Russia can't go on. You are one of the fathers of the International Space Station. You were part of NASA's negotiating team. You've spent so much time at the Baikonur Cosmodrome with cosmonauts. Why did you write this piece and why now? Well, of course, it, it was principally a reaction to this uh, horrendous illegal war that's going on in Ukraine uh, by the Russians, but also because of the rather continuous threats uh, against the International Space Station by uh, Dmitry Rogozin, the head of the Russian Space Agency, or Roscosmos, as it's called now, who, who keeps trying to use the Russian support of the International Space Station as a diplomatic lever against us. And so I felt like that I should uh, 
kind of uh, put a shot across uh, Mr. Rigochin's bow and say, okay, we'll t- let's take you up on your threat. Uh, actually, we, you need the space station a lot more than we do. And so if you don't have the space station, you have absolutely nowhere to go. And uh, he's been doing a lot of what my mom would call cutting off his nose to spite his face. And that is um, he has uh, uh, refused to launch uh, satellites for uh, the Europeans, even after they paid him for it. He's pulling out of uh, French Guiana from the launch facilities down there and basically destroying his uh, commercial space sector. So we don't have to do much. It seems like to me he's going to do it all himself. But I just felt like that we ought to have a response uh, to his threats to end the International Space Station. And that is that, well, all right, if you don't want to be here, um, we don't need you. And so I just, um, that's why I wrote that editorial. You know, in your piece, you mentioned the Cygnus missions that resupplied the International Space Station. Could you explain Ukraine's part in those missions? Yeah, I mean, actually, um, the uh, rocket that launches our, our Cygnus is kind of a hi- hybrid. It's a hybrid Ukrainian and Russian product that we have assembled ourselves in the United States. We bought all these pieces and brought them in and created the booster that carries the Cygnus uh, in, into orbit and on up to the International Space Station. So it's kind of interesting. Um, all that stopped. Uh, we I doubt that we'll ever buy another uh, Russian engine, but I can guarantee you after this war, we'll buy just about anything Ukraine makes. So Ukraine, uh, hang in there and, uh, and it'll be back in the space business after all this is over. I've been monitoring Dmitry Rogozin's Twitter feed. He's posted videos of national flags on Soyuz rockets being pasted over and what looks like hostage videos of Roscosmos employees meekly standing by while he rails against the West, its sanctions, uh, and others where he falsely accuses Ukraine of being run by Nazis and of developing weapons of mass destruction. What in your mind is he doing and what is it doing to Roscosmos and, and even to its heritage? Well, it's absolutely destroying Roscosmos and, um, uh, again, after this is over, they're going to have nowhere to go. Nobody is going to want to sign up to fly on a on a Soyuz uh, again uh, because you can't. They're not. They proved to be not dependable. So, so who is he playing to? Well, of course he's playing to his boss Putin. Uh, he wants to. Uh, he wants uh, Mr. Putin to uh, to like him and keep him in that position. But uh, I just don't see any great future for him or the entire Russian uh, space effort, except in a military regard. But um, they're really going to be short of funds even for that after this is all over. So it doesn't really make sense what he's doing. I can't get inside his head, except he's just acting the fool. And uh, it's just crazy what he's doing. And how hard would it be to decouple Russia's involvement in the International Space Station. I mean, the International Space Station has that name because it's it's more than just the United States and Russia. It's, it's others, Japan, Canada, the UK has been. How hard would this be? And, and, you know, how quickly could that actually be done if that's what NASA so chooses to do? Well, technically, it wouldn't be that hard, but it would require Russian cooperation. Uh, essentially, <laughs> essentially, they would have to turn off the lights and leave. If they turned the lights off and left, then we would have 
a space station still there, it uh, in order to keep operating it, it, all we need is to boost it up to a safer orbit occasionally. We can do that with either the Cygnus or the new uh, Boeing Starliner when it gets going. And, and any, and, you know, that's what NASA does best, to give them a real, real problem, real technical problem like that, and no problem. They'll get up there and uh, we could continue to, to operate the International Space Station. But, um, so technically it's feasible, but uh, politically it would be really, really difficult because um, we do have uh, a, an agreement. We have two agreements, actually, two memos of understanding between us and the Russians. We have one that's directly between NASA and, uh, and the Russian Space Agency on how we will operate the station together. And then we have another one that's at the State Department level uh, also signed in 1998 between United States, Russia, uh, Canada, the Europeans, um, and Japan principally, and a whole bunch of other nations. And so we really just can't unilaterally walk away from them. They really can't unilaterally politically walk away from us either uh, without just throwing away this treaty that everybody signed. So my idea if we're going, it's really, you know, I don't really foresee the Russians leaving the space station. It's just too valuable for them to do it unless they're just really, really uh, crazy over there. But what I do see and what I would recommend is that the vice president, who's head of the National Space Council, call the other partners together, say, look, we've got one of our partners that is flagrantly performing a, a, an illegal war here and 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 being brutal against civilians, men, women, and children, all that. So we've got a real problem with, and the, plus they're threatening to uh, not only pull out of the space station, but actively send it crashing to earth. I don't believe they'll do any of that. Don't get me wrong, but that's what they're doing. And, and so the National Space Agency should bring all these together, these folks together and say, what do you think that we ought to do? And then probably the, what would come out of that is that we would come up with a way to keep the space station operating and invite the Russians to leave. And uh, that essentially, uh, take that's a diplomatic lever that we would pull. And that hopefully would be just one more diplomatic lever to maybe bring the Russians back to their senses that this is uh, this whole this whole thing with all the sanctions and everything is just not worth continuing this brutal war. You have personally worked with cosmonauts and astronauts of many countries. How hard is it for astronauts and the cosmonauts that are currently on the International Space Station to cope with what's going on on the ground. I'd imagine they already actually have probably pretty good relationships up there. I mean, it is person to person, but how hard is it for them to cope with what, what's happening on the ground and what various governments are doing while they're in orbit? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> most of the uh, cosmonauts and astronauts know each other very, very well. One of the requirements for uh, flying to the International Space Station was that all American astronauts should learn how to speak Russian and the Russians all learn how to speak English. And so there's time spent by almost every astronaut that goes up to the space station uh, in Russia. And so you get to know, and this was the whole idea really behind the International Space Station was to develop these relationships, but personal relationships between the people that were on both sides during the Cold War. 
and uh, you get to know the families and, you know, you go out to dinner with them and the children and all that. And so, I mean, actually, I think that American astronauts and Russian cosmonauts would die for each other. That's how much they like each other or have, become, have be developed this relationship. So it's very, very difficult, I'm sure, uh, for them. But my, and I think that that should continue, that relationship should continue. My concern, though, is that the optics right now of Russian cosmonauts and American astronauts and European astronauts and Japanese astronauts, you know, smiling and laughing and, and, and that kind of thing should probably not happen right now. Um, that's only to the Russian advantage and um, to, to make it make things look normal when in fact things are very, very abnormal. And uh, so we have to be careful right now about the optics of uh, the meet and greet on the space station. And I'm sorry that it's come to this, but that's where we are. You can't be involved in space without having a certain measure of optimism. Do you think that it's possible that we could work with the Russians in space in the future? Well, I guess anything is possible. If they overthrew the Putin government and uh, put in a uh, democratically elected uh, leadership that reached out to the West, then yes, I think that th that would be possible. But if we continue down the same road, uh, no, I don't think it is. There's just no benefit for the West uh, to do that. Um, we might as well let the Russian space effort die on the vine because that's what's going to happen if they don't reach, reach out to us. And it's sad. And uh, of course, they have a very proud space history. The first satellite, the first human in space, all kinds of firsts. First lander on the moon and on Venus. And, uh, but um, they're still working with really, really old technology. It's good. I mean, they make great uh, engines and so on, but, but we're making better now. We don't really need them. So uh, no, I, I, don't, I don't foresee it unless there's a complete change in the government over in, in Russia. Homer, thank you so much for your time and for joining me. Well, thank you, Laura, for having me. I appreciate it. On Twitter, you can check out Rogozin's latest failed threat, which he tweeted out on Saturday, March 12th. In Ukraine, there's no doubt Russia's war has impacted that nation's space sector. But my next three guests have a message. They're still standing and still working. Hi, Volodymyr, Lubomir, and Lilia. It's really an honor to have you on the podcast. Hello. 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 Some in the international space community, especially in Europe, already know you, but it would be great for my audience if you guys could take this moment to introduce yourselves, you know, your background in space and what you're doing now. Great, thanks. Let me start, Laura. Uh, so I'm a former chairman of Space Agency of Ukraine and also the member of the International Academy of Astronautics and the co-founder of the Orbit Boy company. Uh, we're working now on developing an air launch system to enable autonomous access to space to Europe from the territory of European continent. And we have our R&D facilities and our technology based in Ukraine. And we're trying to bring that technology to European nations and also to the United States. And we'll be happy to share what's happening right now in the space industry in Ukraine and how this terrible invasion impacts our enterprises and people who are working there. So thanks for having us here today. Hello, Laura, once more. I'm Lubomir Sabadosh, former chairman of Space Agency of Ukraine. Also, I'm a co-founder of Orbit Boy Company United Kingdom. 
And Lilia? I'm Lilia Shavchuk, uh, and I'm a director of uh, um, Space Initiatives Center, an NGO based in Kyiv. Uh, it was founded in 2017 as a platform for uniting ideas, efforts, and thoughts of individuals, um, companies, to somehow streamline the efforts, both in the interests of Ukraine as a space company and uh, foreign partners to find joint projects to implement and find the best match between what Ukraine can offer, what are the needs, as well as what are the potential outside Ukraine to generate the best products we can together. Obviously, this is a tough time, but before we dig into what's happening in the Ukrainian space sector, Vladimir, you're in Odessa, and Lubomir and Lilia, you're in Lviv. Lilia, tell us about the immediate situation there. Um, Lviv is far western part of uh, the country. It's only 60 kilometers away from the Polish border and border crossings, and it has turn into a, a, an enormous hub of all routes coming from the east uh, to the west, as well as all the humanitarian aid that is getting from the west to the western part of the country, as well as far to the eastern regions that are captured by fire. And we have enormous uh, initiatives of volunteers helping people uh, both staying in the country and those who are leaving um, the country for some time, as well as uh, organizing the assistance with receiving the humanitarian aid here, um, as well as working uh, because many companies have moved their offices. Uh, like, for example, myself being based in Lviv, uh, having a Kyiv registration as, a, as an office. Um, so we have many people working, both for the, as their main activities, as well as working as volunteers to facilitate help, whatever they can do and, and the, the, under the present circumstances. Volodymyr, how about you? Yeah, we were anticipating the invasion from the sea. Uh, it looks like it's not happening right now because our armed forces were successful enough to uh, destroy several fighter jets and one battleship uh, yesterday. So there's not so much uh, willingness from Russian troops to be destroyed at our beaches right now. So we're not anticipating this invasion in the next several days, but the situation can change dramatically in just several hours. So nobody can expect what can be tomorrow. Uh, but we are ready, we are fighting back, and we're sure that no Russian troops will be uh, successful in invading Odessa, both from the sea or air. Uh, we are pretty strong here, and uh, Odessa was known as one of the most pro-Russian cities, Russian-speaking countries, and maybe an interesting fact for you uh, is that there is like an old Russian dramatic theater in Odessa, and three days ago, they asked to change their name to Ukrainian dramatic theater. So there's no people in Odessa who can support Russia or even like any plans of Russia regarding their politics in Ukraine. So we are all here supporting independence, freedom, democracy, and we will win. I reached out to you because Ukraine is a longtime spacefaring nation, starting in the Soviet era, and SpaceX just launched the first, but hopefully not the last, of your nation's dual-use Earth observation satellites in January. Vladimir, could you tell us a little about that satellite? 
Yeah, sure. Uh, actually, Ukraine had a big pause in launching its own satellites. It's about more than 10 years that there were no launches of our own uh, built in Ukraine spacecraft and satellite system. So after this big break, that's the first successful launch we had. Our uh, control center is working with all the tests needed to get the full functionality of the satellite to get all the remote sensing services we anticipate. And uh, in Ukraine, like historically, we had a really uh, powerful uh, ground segment and infrastructure we need for operating a fleet of our own satellites. So this first satellite should become the first satellite of the fleet of six, seven spacecraft that should be launched in the next five years as a part of a new national space program. And of course, it's critical for Ukraine to uh, achieve two major goals as a part of this national program. First, to have our own remote sensing constellation of satellites, which we need as our own eyes in space, not only to ask our partners to get the images in high resolution, but to have our own uh, capacity. And second, to get our own access to space, uh, because as you know, we had a lot of projects of different launch vehicles, uh, both we work internationally with our partners in Brazil, which was not a successful project at the end of the day. So now Ukraine should focus on having our own autonomous access to space. And that's actually the main goal of the project we are involved with Lubomir and the team of Orbit Boy. But it's not only like Ukrainian project, we're collaborating with Poland, with Italy, to create a European platform where European nations can get their own autonomous access from the territory of Europe. Uh, that's something they lack right now. And I don't want uh, European nations uh, to depend on Soyuz launch vehicles and Roscosmos to launch their uh, rockets from Kourou. Uh, but we also need a plan B to have our own uh, autonomous capacity. And that's what we are focused on. Didn't the satellite also have a special meaning to its name? I mean, Sish 230? Yeah, actually the Sish is a name which means a lot for every Ukrainian. It represents the soul of Ukrainian independence from that time when Ukraine was a, a collaboration of really brave people. You can compare it to the uh, ancient Sparta. So those were the warriors that really were fighting for their independence, uh, sacrificing their lives and everything they could uh, to be proud of their own attitude to being free people. And today, Sich is something what Ukraine is showcasing to the world. So today, Ukraine is a new modern Sich or a modern Sparta. Because what we see having that battle between Ukraine and Russia, in numbers, it's close to what Sparta was doing to the Persian uh, army. I think we're going through our uh, thermopiles, but the result and the outcome will be much better for Ukraine that we got used to see in uh, Spartan movies. So we hope for it and we're fighting for that. The Dnipro area is called Rocket Valley for a reason. It's the place to manufacture rockets and rocket stages, and they're currently being used in NASA missions, U.S. Department of Defense launches, and ESA missions, just to name a few. Lubimir, prior to Russia's invasion, what was that industrial center capable of producing? I think that uh, in Dnieper, we have really big facilities to produce uh, many rockets and satellites, but right now, Ukraine 
working in uh, two areas. We try to uh, produce first stage of uh, uh, rocket Antares, and uh, also we try to realize our national space program. And I think that uh, in this time we thinking about how can we move our facilities from Dnieper to Lviv and maybe some facilities to Poland, because we would like to save our uh, facilities and our researching potential and uh, our team uh, from Dnieper, from Kharkov, from Lviv, uh, from Kiev, because we know that after war we will win and after war we will try to find our place in the space air with Europe and the United States. But I will jump in maybe for a second. It's, it's Vladimir here, and I agree with Lubomir regarding the uh, capacity of Ukrainian space industry. It's mostly located in a triangle between Dnipro, Kharkiv, and Kiev, and Yuzhmash as like the main uh, production facility for rocketry in Ukraine. It's quite a unique enterprise. It's still the biggest rocket factory in the world, which was used to manufacture about 100 launch vehicles and missiles per year, which is close now to the like global annual market, we see in 2022 and 2021. Uh, unfortunately, Ukraine does not have so much demand to support the enterprise with internal projects. That's why uh, our vision and our mission are like chairman of space agency, both Lubomir and me, was to create an international collaborations and joint ventures in order to create more demand for uh, Yuzhmash and other Ukrainian enterprises. Uh, for now, we see there are no damage from Russian attacks directly to Yuzhmash and other key enterprises in Dnipro. And I think that's for a reason, because somehow Russians think that they can take over those enterprises and to integrate them into the Roscosmos ecosystem. But I'm sure this won't happen. And uh, Yuzhmash will be an independent Ukrainian state enterprise. And we will be happy to integrate it to as much new projects in collaboration with the United States and Europe as, as possible. Uh, my personal position was trying to cut Russia from every international collaboration possible. You know that they're working with Soyuz launch vehicle and the European Space Agency and Ariane Space. In Ukraine, we have a beautiful lineup of really cutting edge launch vehicles, and we are open to uh, replace Soyuz vehicle by new launch vehicles manufactured in Ukraine, but in collaboration with our partners in Europe and United States. And we're looking to get any support we can in order to realize the potential Ukrainian space industry can offer to our partners. And Lilia, uh, th that area that we're talking about right now, it, it holds a lot of specialized machinery and institutional knowledge and an educated and uh, well-trained workforce. You know, when we look at where Russia is focusing its ground forces and much of its artillery and dumb bombs, Dnipro seems to have so far escaped these hostilities. You know, do you agree that Russia's holding back because of what are basically billions of dollars worth of very specialized machinery and very special hangars and, and, and also some very highly trained people. Uh, I wouldn't doubt. I think that Volodymyr has, uh, is absolutely right in terms of uh, identifying and pinning down the key reason. 
Just the Ukraine Space Agency alone, with its some 20 state-run companies, reportedly has a staff of 14,000 people. Uh, the number you quote, like 40,000 employees, these are the numbers that are supervised, or it's called supervised by the agency. So they, uh, as the agency uh, controls the operation of state-owned or partly state-owned companies, the agency has the numbers of employees from them. But we have uh, a large number of far smaller scale companies privately owned. They're not obliged to report on the number of their employees. So the number of people employed in the sector could be far larger you know, in this time, considering that, you know, Russia has invaded your country, what are all these workers doing? I mean, they have such incredible knowledge, but this isn't normal times. Um, You can divide this question into two parts. First of all, because of the shock, nobody was ready. So uh, at the moment, people are um, on the paid leave. They have been moved from risky areas waiting for the time when they come back to the offices or they work remotely and being paid performing their duties and their obligations as it was plus the those privately owned companies they deal with foreign companies that are still running and they're still under the obligations and they yesterday i've come across a message from a volunteer uh, organization selling we might run out of hands because people are coming back to their workplaces and we uh, and proceed with uh, doing their main main job rather than helping with uh, in voluntary initiatives so people are working as much as they can remotely at their houses or uh, some companies move the offices from the risky areas to more safe areas uh, and employ people in this way to, to do the job. Lyubimir, just this last week, you were sitting with the Ukraine and Polish space agencies to sign a space cooperation protocol. What was that about? I, I think, uh, Lara, that the main reason of our meeting in Lviv uh, is we want to show the whole world that Ukraine still working, still fighting. And we are really sure that we will win. And that's why our partner, I mean Polish, also would like to say for whole world that uh, Polish Space Agency give, give a hand for us and shake our hands and say, we together. We will help you and together we will play and we will do and we will realize space project in the future. I think that's the next step in our really huge historical cooperation because Ukraine and Poland working more than 10 years together and uh, Polish scientists, Polish engineers uh, have really big progress in the space technologies. And uh, together, I think that together we will do many many interesting things in the future. And that's why Polish space agency come to view in this hard time and show we don't afraid Putin, we don't afraid Russian troops. We will work together and we will have a success. And Vladimir, what do you see as being the future? I hope that like in five or maybe 10 years, we'll see 
about 50-50 uh, for space enterprise uh, operated by state and new private space companies and startups. So I think that Ukraine should have a really flexible uh, space ecosystem, which will consist of both private and space companies. And the main impact uh, now that government and state can uh, send to that companies is actually a new national space program that should create a demand for a new technology for innovation that should be created not only by well-established state enterprises like Yuzhmash, but also by smaller startups. And uh, if uh, there would be such a signal from the state to a new startups, I think we will see tens or maybe hundreds of new companies with a talented people who wouldn't leave Ukraine and look for well-paid jobs in the US or Europe, but they will focus on something they can do and they can achieve in Ukraine. Because if you will like ask all these young people, why are they still staying in Ukraine instead of going to work for SpaceX or ULA or European Space Agency? They say that there is something they choose over the big salaries and really good terms. They are proud of what they're doing in Ukraine. They're proud of their heritage and they are really sacrificing a lot to stay here in Ukraine with their families under this severe invasion from Russia. The only thing they need to receive is a signal from the state that they are needed here, that they will be supported here, and they will be something, a part of something bigger than their own small company, that there would be a big space ecosystem they will be a proud part of. And I think now after all this really complicated uh, challenges Ukraine is facing right now, we will finally come stronger and Ukraine will have their own space ecosystem that will be integrated into the global space ecosystem. Because, you know, there are closed industries like in China, in Russia, and Ukraine is one of few nations which is still willing to share their knowledge, to share their technology with their partners in the West world. And I think Ukraine already earned to be a part of this Western space ecosystem. We are a reliable partner to European and US companies since 1993. We joined Artemis Accords that say that we are sharing all the principles of peaceful space exploration. And we're looking to be a um, reliable partner in future. Vladimir, Lubomir, Lilia, Thank you so much for making the time to speak with me today. Thanks, Laura. Thank you very much, Laura, for inviting us to talk. And everybody, please stay safe. We will win. Freedom and We will win. Slava Ukraine. Slava. That's it for this week. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Defense and Aerospace Report's daily podcast hosted by Vago Maradian. And to stay abreast of what's happening in the maritime domain, check out Cavus Ships. The Downlink podcast is available on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.